You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. How are you doing today, Richard? I'm doing well. How about you, Father? I'm doing great. We just came off a fantastic gathering of OCAB's scholars this weekend at St. Elizabeth. And of course, we recorded our Thursday show live at the symposium, and that will be aired later this week. Yeah, it was a great opportunity to meet face-to-face some of the listeners of the podcast and hear about some of the impressions that people have. It's always nice to get that encouragement to keep doing what we're doing, but you know, Father, even without the encouragement, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. But it's nice to meet face-to-face people who are regular listeners to the podcast. On today's program, Father Paul continues his discussion of Genesis, Richard, and how God, in making the tohu wabohu functional in Genesis, enters into a confrontation with the waters. Elsewhere in his writings, he's talked about the important role of the waters, for example, in the story of the Psalms. Again, God is the one who confronts and conquers and masters the waters. And that's exactly what's happening here in Genesis where God is doing so, so that the dry land can surface in the midst of the waters in order to produce life. It's God who produces life, and the way that he produces life is by planting his seed, so to speak, his word in the land. So when he speaks, the land produces. That is when Mother Earth produces life. As always, Father Paul emphasizes syntax, Again, pointing to the order of things, the order in which things were created. And pay attention today because we think of first as being primary, but that's not always the case. Just like Isaac and Ishmael, just like Jacob and Esau, God always shows that he's in control when he picks the second one to be the one who carries the line, who carries the inheritance. And so God can go against human progeny by picking out where he decides the line is going to continue. I am happy, or as Father Paul might say, we each are happy to introduce Father Paul on Tarazi Tuesday's The Bible as Literature podcast. Now go back mentally to verse 2, and you will hear it again, that the earth was tohu and bohu under the darkness threatened by the waters of the sea. It didn't have life yet. But what is interesting here is that the existence, the appearance of the earth is presented in two steps. First, you have something dry, but this is intentional because it tells you that it is not overcome or covered by waters. So here the word dry is very interesting. It's the step towards the appearance of life on earth and the vegetation. And I'm convinced that 
the writing is made in this way to impress the hearers that it is God that is producing these things. And we shall hear it momentarily. That the earth will start producing vegetation, which is the view of the earth as a mother to all of us. It was known. But the trigger to make it so, a producing mother, it is the seed that comes from the word of God because he says so. Okay, remember in Ezekiel there were dry bones and God says to Ezekiel, speak out, son of man. Say the word I'm asking you to say. And then lo and behold, the dry bones that should have been scattered by the Ruach, the mighty wind, are brought together as a new life. And it would be good for my hearers to hear the famous myth of Baal and Mot, Mot, death, which is the sea. Baal, uh, in that story, controls the powers of the waters. So it's not just a click of a switch, you know. We have technically a battle stand. And one more time, keep in mind the Exodus where God battles against Pharaoh and controls the waters. Uh, let's hear the text. I'm trying, if you like, to explain it before <laughs> the hearers hear it, just to help them to make sure that they would not close their ears to my comments and, more importantly, to the text and start assuming things in their mind, imagining. So in 9, we have that the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. Just hear it. In other words, God is pushing aside or bringing together those waters so that the land would appear. Just use the example of how many islands appear, you know, from a volcano that comes from underneath the sea and pushes the waters aside, and suddenly you have a dry piece of rock in the middle of the sea that becomes land. A good place to visit to understand these things would be the state of Hawaii or Scotland. You know, it's very impressive. And one more time, after it was so at the end of nine, we have the calling of the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And again, you notice the same phenomenon that we noticed earlier. The precedence is given to the one that appears later. Remember, there was darkness and then there was light, but God calls first the light, the precedence to the later. We shall encounter this with the predilection of God to the second in line among the sons. It's typical. 
to underscore the control of God. It is what God decides that is what it is. It's not because we conclude that it should be so. That's the view. Otherwise, I cannot agree with it unless it is. No, it is so according to the text because God does it in this way. And God saw that it was good. And then let's finish the third day. Very interesting. Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which they seed each according to the scan upon this earth. And then notice after and it was so you have the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed. As I mentioned to you earlier, that is under the command of God that the earth acts as mother. One more time, it is under his control. But because this is important, notice the third day is lengthier than the second day. We have the earth and then the vegetation. I shall stop here and pick up this topic next time. Another reason is that because it prepares for what we're going to hear on day four or the fourth day. One more time. The interconnection of the statements here. The days do not separate completely what happens in the one from what happens in the other. It's a continual linkage, but, you know, in steps. And the most important element, as we shall see, is precisely the end of the third day and the beginning of the fourth day. To satisfy the curiosity of my hearers, it's striking that the earth is producing what it is supposed to be producing before the appearance of the sun in the fourth day. In verse 2, all you have is the spirit and the waters. The waters keep getting mentioned all the way through this chapter. But the spirit, the Ruach, doesn't get mentioned anymore until the cool of the day after Adam has eaten of the apple. Yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a classical question of an orthodox at heart. Somehow we worry about the spirit, you know. We assume that unless it is all over the place. But we have to submit to the text. I have an answer to that, okay? I mean, when you read Ezekiel, you have it right there at the beginning, powerfully with an adjective. In other words, a mighty, mighty wind. And then it has its own function and its major function that tells you that it gives life appears in chapter 37 with the dry bones. What I think is that the spirit is the spirit of God, very clearly, Ruach Elohim. Remember, I am spirit, 
and Pharaoh and his chariots are flesh. This is not our domain. And here in Genesis 1, the author is interested in the human animalic domain, not so much about the divine domain. But let me quench your thirst. When you encounter the second time this Ruah, again it is not good news. Because when God is found walking at the breeze of the day, the Ruah that is mentioned, he is there to judge Adam. He is calling him and to judge them, as we shall see later. So there again, it is still threatening. But we are so much used to speak only positively about the Spirit that, you know, we mishear the Bible. We mishear the Bible. And I would venture already from now that the spirit that Paul preached was the spirit that came in power to force the Gentiles into submission to God. He didn't come or it did not come to cajole them, to make them feel good. But this is what I find in Platonic theology. We always assume that we are the center of the universe and the main interest of scripture. And I mean by we mean each one thinks that he or she is the center. Notice how in the Protestant tradition you stress always the fact that God in the text speak to me directly. Well, he speaks to all of us, Israel. When he speaks to one person, it is to call that one person to carry his word to the entire people. And thus, neither you nor I are Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. They are just one of a kind. We are on the receiving end, but we are on the receiving end of a majestic God, as in Genesis 1 and three, and in Ezekiel, and in the Psalms. Recall what I said earlier, that the shepherd of Israel, who is not threatening, except with his staff, suddenly is presented as seated upon the cherubim. That should never be forgotten, especially by the Orthodox, who time and again when they approach the chalice, they approach first and foremost with or in the fear of God. So that would be my answer. It's a little bit lengthy, but I thought I needed this total picture for us to perceive Meaning that ultimately, when we call upon the Spirit, we should be in tremor, as Paul says in Philippians, you know. We shall work our salvation in fear and trembling. Be 
because the other facet is the judgment. And I showed you how in chapter 3 it functions along those lines. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.